Thank you so much, Brother Dan. And would you open your Bibles with me now to that text that he just read, Romans chapter 3. And I, I would like to just encourage you once again to, to bring your Bibles when you come to a church service. Uh, it's, I'm not like some anti-screen, anti-technology guy. Uh, the reason I say that is because it's really helpful to have a paper Bible sitting on your lap. Not least because then you can see the context of the text that we're looking at. You can see what's around it, which is almost impossible to do with a little iPhone or even with an iPad. So it's just a really helpful thing. And then bring a pencil or a pen so you can write notes in the margins and maybe years from now, you'll come back to this text and be reminded of something that God taught you this morning. When I was in my first semester in seminary, one of the first classes that I took was called Reading the Greek New Testament. And we just happened to be working through the text, kind of the lab that we were working in as we read through the Greek New Testament was Romans chapter 14 and 15. And the pastor and professor who was leading us in that class, his name was Tom Steller. And I can remember one morning in particular. So there was just eight of us, eight students. It was a cohort-based model. I spent three years with these other seven guys. And we're sitting in this little U-taped, U, a U-shaped table in this little classroom. And Pastor Tom is bringing us through this section of Romans. And he's, so we're sitting there. I'm, I'm sitting at the end of this U. And he's kind of up in the right-hand corner of the room. And I wish you could have seen him. His face was just lit up. I mean, he was so happy as he was taking us through Romans 14 and 15. And his voice just rang with the joy and delight of discovery that he was unpacking for us as he worked through the text. And then I realized something. It struck me so powerfully that this was the 20th time he had worked through this text. He'd been teaching this class. We were the 20th class for 20 years. And it was like it was all brand new. It was like he had never seen these things before. And I was just so amazed. And I so wanted to be like Tom. I just wanted to be like him. How can you see the Bible that way? This thing that you have seen and taught for 20 years. It was really magnificent. And I feel... I feel, I felt like this week, I feel like this morning as I make my way through Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 that Paul is a great deal like Tom at this point in his ministry. You see, Paul at the point in his, is at the point in his ministry when he writes this letter to the Romans, he has already been preaching and teaching these things for 20 years. He's incredibly familiar with the material that he is now committing to paper. He's gone through it again and again and again in multiple cities and contexts and communities. There is probably very little that he hasn't thought about or any question that he hasn't heard or any objection that he hasn't already had to deal with. And as I sat at my writing desk this past Thursday morning, watching Paul argue Listening to him speak, because that's the way I feel by Thursday morning, is that I can see him, 
and hear him in my ears? Something struck me about Paul in the same way that it had about Tom Seller. Namely, that he is so excited <laughs> and passionate. It's like he's opening the gift on Christmas morning as a little kid. He's so thrilled to see what God is doing and what he is up to in this world. It's almost like he can't speak, or in this case, write fast enough to get it all out so we can hear the deep truths and the meaty theology and realities so we can see and understand the big picture. He just wants to get it out so fast that you can see this triune God, this Father, Son, and Spirit. And he has so much going on in his head at one time and he's doing his best to get it out all in a logical and orderly manner, but he can't help but get ahead of himself at times. <laughs> he just can't help it. He gives us sometimes mere glimpses of topics that he's going to get into more deeply further and he keeps touching on those things and trying to stop himself and then going back to what he was already thinking about to unpack that thing for us. It's absolutely marvelous. And so because all of that's going on in Paul and he's trying to get it all out in this rush, sometimes we just gotta be patient with the brother. Sunday by Sunday, class by class, if you will. It, we must be confident that he will eventually answer all of our questions and at the end of the kind of quote unquote semester, that it'll all be clear because it will. It will all be clear. And by the way, you get to cheat. You kind of have the syllabus. You could read ahead, as someone has been saying recently. You have the entire class contained in your Bibles, and you can see where his argument is going to take us and how it will unfold. So I, I just want to ask you again, can we just kind of enjoy the ride? Because <laughs> it's a ride with Paul. Let's sit back. I want you to sit back this morning and I hope that I can represent him well and you'll get caught up in his excitement and, and passion and joy as the pieces of the puzzle come together bit by bit, Sunday by Sunday. So let's pray now again, shall we, for the Spirit's help in this. Father, like the psalmist asked of you centuries ago, our, heights, our heart's desire is that you would open our eyes so that we might contemplate wondrous things from your instruction, bringing to us this morning confidence and passion and joy and delight for our hearts and minds. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name. So, at the end of last week, we got to the end, Romans 1.18, all the way to 2.29 of Paul's blow-by-blow -blow argument against various groups of people in the great diversity of humanity where he has effectively knocked down every possible objection to prove that every single person in world history stands guilty in their sin and without excuse before a righteous God who is himself the standard of rightness in the world. And Paul's aim in that we saw last week was to bring every person to the end of themselves and to see their need for God 
to do the heart surgery necessary to, to make them right before him, that the only way that they can have a righteous and whole and transformed heart is by the spirit and not the letter. Chapter 229, let your eyes gaze up to that. And the letter we have learned that Paul is referring to there is the letter of the law. His argument, having concluded by zeroing in on proving to Jews, to Jews that the law and circumcision could not save them from the wrath and judgment of God. Further, therefore, that Jews and Gentiles are equally without excuse before God and they need that spirit work within them to save them from a just judgment before a righteous and holy God. And because Paul has been at this for 20 years, he can easily anticipate the kinds of questions that this teaching will raise. He knows what Jews in Rome will be thinking at this point in his argument, right? Remember, Paul himself was trained in the law, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He understands what they are going to be wrestling with from the inside out. And so instead of waiting for them to raise objections, he raises them himself. Starting with the most obvious and understandable question first. Paul. Okay, if it is not about having the law as defined as the first five books of the Bible, and if it is not about circumcision, then you might ask, well, what in the world am I doing following all these things that have been taught in Judaism for centuries? If both Jews and Gentiles are caught in evil and justly judged according to their works, well, <laughs> why even bother with living the Jewish way of life, Paul? What advantage, verse 1, does the Jew have? What is the benefit of circumcision? And after everything that Paul has just taught us, in 2, 12 to 29, we are expecting, we should be expecting as an answer, a resounding and emphatic, none. <laughs> There's no advantage or benefit to being Jewish. We're all equal. But to our surprise, Paul's answer is the opposite. Paul, the benefit of Jewishness is considerable in every way. Verse 2. So if we've been following along Paul's argument, it felt like he was arguing that it was of no advantage to be a Jew. We're all equal as Jews and Gentiles. And Paul now not only goes on to say that it is an advantage to be Jewish, but he goes all in saying, it's not just an advantage, it's of considerable advantage. And oh wait, it's not just of considerable advantage, it is of considerable advantage in every possible way. To which we might respond, we are really confused now, Paul. So could you please explain yourself? And because Paul has been at this 20 years, he saw that coming and is ready with an answer. Chapter 3, verse 2. First, now we got to stop right there with that little word, first. Because here is one of those times that Paul is only able to give us a peek into what he is going to argue in more detail later. Let me show you. Okay, it, it's like this, right? When, when you ask someone a question and they respond with, first, let me say this, what do you expect? You expect a second. 
Well, first, let me say this, and second, let me say that, and then third, let me say this. Depending on how you're talking to, it might go on to 10 points. But the problem is that Paul never gets to, and second, let me say. Well, at least not in chapter 3. He does come back to this in chapter 9, verse 4. And when he does, he will spend three chapters unpacking, in fact, how it is very beneficial to be Jewish and how God still considers the Jews his special people, even as he incorporates Gentiles into his covenant promises and salvation. But we're going to have to be patient and put a pin in that for when he can explain it further because Paul is focused right now on completing his argument regarding unrighteousness of humanity in light of God's judgment and righteousness. So he can only deal with this advantage of the Jews briefly right now. These are the kinds of layers that he keeps doing over and over throughout. And we just got to keep being patient and tracking with him. And so now he's going to briefly deal with it. First, verse 2, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, you've got to get yourself in their shoes because the Jews were surrounded by cultures who were eager and longing for words. Literally here, the word is oracles. They were longing for words from divine and supernatural beings who would guide their lives. This was not unusual in the culture surrounding Jews. And it's no different today, right? Our world is filled with humans searching for divine and powerful words, they search for it in places like the uh Yeah, try and say that fast. Bahadvagita. In the Quran. In the writings of Confucius. In the Book of Mourning. And on and on. There is a humanity crying out, give us divine oracles by which my life can be guided and I can get the answers And Paul is clear. Jews had the advantage that they were entrusted with the actual divine oracles. They were entrusted with the very words of God. The words of God. The only God. To them, he will write in chapter 9, belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the ancestors are theirs. And from them by physical descent comes the Messiah who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. To them was given a rule of life in Torah so they might live in happiness and prosperity and flourishing as well as all of the promises of God. And they were obligated to keep these things, to hold fast in their covenant obligations, and they were obligated to share these things, to be a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations in which, by which, the Gentiles, all of us, could have hope. You see, this advantage wasn't given to them as a security blanket by which they could hold up their ethnicity, religion, and privilege as a shield from any judgment, conviction, and accusation. No, this advantage, this entrusting to them of the very words of God, the law and the promises, was a responsibility. They were supposed to live these things out to keep them 
so that the blessings might be theirs. The blessings might be theirs, read Deuteronomy. And they were supposed to share them so that the blessings might be for the Gentiles. Hear Isaiah chapter, two, 42, or chapter 42, verses six and seven. I am Yahweh. I have called you for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand and I will watch over you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. I want you to open blind eyes and I want you to bring prisoners out from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. And for any of us who have read the story of the Jews, we know that they failed miserably. They failed in the keeping and the sharing of the words of God. And Paul knows because of his experience that this means an additional objection is coming. What then? Verse three. If some of the Jews were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, I want... I got I to gotta pause here now because I want you to see something brilliant that Paul does. I want, I want to show you something. I want to translate this bit a little bit more literally from the original. And I want to be careful when I do that because I don't want you to think when I do these little forays into the Greek or the Hebrew if we're in the Old Testament that somehow you can't trust the Bible that you have on your lap and that that translation isn't good enough for you because it is. We have wonderful English translations. But like we say, when we talk to people, we're like, things can get lost in translation. And even in the best translation, there's things you can't see. And here's how I, I want you to see what Paul does with the language here, because it's really remarkable. There's a theme that he's building in verses two and three. Let me, let me put it on the screen for you. If some to whom God's promises were entrusted, if some of those did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness. In other words, does the untrustworthiness of God's covenant people call into question the trustworthiness, covenant keeping, and promises of God, and therefore his character? Because wasn't the promise of the covenant of God, wasn't the promise of the faithfulness of God that he would keep his people? So isn't their failure actually on him? And let us note, this is, or at least should be, a supremely critical question for us who want to trust God and that God will be found trustworthy regarding his promises to us. So this is not an unimportant question. This is all about trust and our ability to trust God and what he's up to in our lives. Paul's response drips with revulsion at even the consideration of such a thought of God that he would be found untrustworthy. Absolutely not in chapter three, verse four, he says. And he uses a Greek construction that communicates the negative in the strongest possible terms. It's idiomatic. If we were to say it today, we would say, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Not in a million years. God will never, never, ever, ever break his covenant. Ever. 
Now we're going to have to wait once again for Paul's much longer response to this. He's going to say at the beginning of chapter 9, has God's word failed? And then he'll spend chapter 9 to 11 defending the fact that it has not. But here he, bit, he backs it up just a little bit more in verse 4. Absolutely not. It will not nullify his faithfulness. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. In other words, let God be found trustworthy. Because if you look at his record, you will see in the whole story that he does what he says he will do proving he is true. And it doesn't matter if the entire world, every single person in all of humanity does not do what they say they are going to do, proving they are false, showing they are liars. Even the weight of the entirety of humanity being found liars does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Does not call him or his character into question. And it is at this point where Paul strikes Paul. Hmm. You know, an illustration might be helpful right here. And because he's so sharp, he doesn't give just any old Israelite's failure as an example of this, of of being a liar, of being found a liar. No, he chooses one who is supposed to be the model for all of Israel in the keeping and sharing of the covenant. He chooses a king. Why do you think he did that? I think he did it because he knows that every king of Israel had to write out their own copy of Torah by hand. And we know that when, when we write things, like studies even show today, when, when you write things, there's something about the act of taking a pencil and putting it to paper that presses that into your mind. They're actually wanting to get laptops out of schools now because it's much better if you write things out. When you get it, it, it presses it in. God knew that before we did. He had the kings write that out so that they would be an example of all of Israel, for all of Israel to follow. They were to lead in the keeping of the law for the nation. They were to lead the nation in the sharing of it. And Paul doesn't choose just any king. He chooses David from whom the forever king would come, would be born. And it is David himself that provides one of the most tragic examples of the non-keeping of the law that there is. And so Paul pulls David's story into his argument saying, as it is written, let God be true even though everyone be found a liar. Illustration, as it is written in Psalm 51 verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Now, we know what we do when we see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, don't we family? What do we do? We go back there because it's a bookmark. And Paul wants to pull you in to that story so that you can swing back and go, okay, why did you do that, Paul? What relevance to Psalm 51? And therefore, then even go back further, right, into the story, into the First Testament. What does all of that have to do with the point that you're currently arguing in Romans 3? Well, most of us know that Psalm 51 is David's reflection of his failure in the adultery and rape of Bathsheba. 
in the murder of her husband Uriah. And we read in Psalm 51, David's plea for forgiveness due to his unrighteous acts before a holy and righteous God. It is his admission of guilt. Psalm 51, verse four, first part, against you and you alone I have sinned, O God, and done this evil in your sight. And then is followed his immediate declaration that God is right in all of his words of judgment on David. He is faithful to the covenant in this, and it is a triumph of his righteousness that he is being judged by God. In other words, the unrighteousness of David and his faithlessness to the covenant of God, inside of which we find the stipulations for what marriage looks like, actually, that his unrighteousness His faithlessness to the covenant of God actually proves God to be in the right in his declaration of David's guilt and proves God to be just in his judgment. Which then, we take all of that now into Paul's. This makes Paul's point that our inability to live truly does not call God's truthfulness and faithfulness into question, even if all humanity is guilty of this. Rather, his judgment actually proves his righteousness and faithfulness. And so he takes David, one who is incredibly respected, right, among the Jews, and says, David is the one who says so. Because you see what Paul knows as a Jew, as a Jew is how so many Jews had misunderstood God's faithfulness. They, listen now, they had misunderstood God's faithfulness as mere covenant fidelity to his people. In other words, they were twisting his faithfulness into a perverted understanding of security. They thought that no matter what they did, they had a kind of get out of judgment free card because God had to be faithful to his covenant, to his people. He couldn't judge and condemn them based on their works because, hey, we're your people. But what David knew and Paul had learned was that God's faithfulness to the covenant included staying true to his word to provide blessings when they kept and shared his word. And what do we read in Deuteronomy? And curses if you don't keep it and you don't share it. That proves my faithfulness too. My punishments, in fact, prove me faithful, just maybe not in the way that you would like. And every parent has heard this argument from their kid. And because Paul understands just how messed up and crazy we can be in our thinking, and because of his decades of teaching experience, he knows the kind of human argument that could now be raised from a Jew toward God. And it is that kind of, I'm a kid trying to get away with something with my parents kind of argument that unfortunately some adults never grow out of. Verse five, someone might argue, and that, that's the ellipsis here. I think that's in a, that, 
I'm putting that in there so you can see the train of thought. Someone might argue, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? And then it's like, he's almost embarrassed to bring this up. I think it's a parenthetical statement. Listen, I'm using a human argument now. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? I mean, do you see the craziness here? It's as if he's saying, uh, well, okay, don't you see God? Like, okay, my sin actually makes you look good. Because see, my unrighteousness makes your righteousness shine all the more brightly, God. So maybe, like, why could you, why are you inflicting wrath on me, God? Like, I'm doing a good thing here by you. I should probably just get more wicked so you could look even better. It's crazy. It's as if. They're arguing that the wickedness that he's just described in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, instead of being punished, should be rewarded. Because it makes God look really good. The question becoming, well, if, because that seems kind of true. So is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? To which Paul says again, you must be out of your ever-loving mind. You are off your rocker. Absolutely not. He, he is not unrighteous to inflict wrath. Otherwise, verse 6, how could God judge the world if that were true? In other words, here Paul, do you see how crazy your thinking is? If this were so, if God were unrighteous to inflict wrath because you think your unrighteousness makes him look good, where would we be able to find any justice? For our father Abraham himself said, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Genesis 18, 25. And the psalmist wrote, God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. Psalm 7, 11. And let the nations rejoice and shout for joy for you judge the peoples with fairness and you lead the nations on earth. Psalm 67, 4. Paul's know, and Paul knows that there are even more objections out there. So now he's really rolling, just nonstop. So Someone else might similarly argue, but if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Again, shouldn't God be pleased that my false speech highlights his truthfulness? Shouldn't he be grateful? Why is he casting me out into a category of sinner, one outside of the covenant, when, you know, like, I'm doing him a service here? And why not say, says Paul, just as some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Now we really see Paul's experience shining brightly. You see, he's been teaching for 20 years. His teaching has gone out there. It's spreading. People are taking it in and his teaching has been misrepresented. And just as Paul did earlier, he's giving us a peek at something he's going to deal with more fully in due court. Do you see? Like he's just boom, 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 boom. There's all these thoughts that are just coming up in his head. He's just got to get them out. And he's not going to be able to deal with this until Romans 5, Romans 6, and Romans 7. This perversion of his teaching, this accusation that the grace of God is somehow a license to sin. As if our sinning increases the grace of God. Right? Romans 7. Oh, Oh, all of his grace covers all of my sin? Well, maybe I should sin even more so that grace can abound. Man, you nuts. And so they say, Paul teaches that we should do evil so that ultimately good 
may result, to which Paul says, that is literally, literally the word here, blasphemy. It's slanderous. It's defamation. It's, it's speech. Saying those kinds of things is intended to harm not only Paul's reputation, but God's reputation. But Paul doesn't even justify such crazy speech with a detailed response at this point because they don't deserve it because they're so self-evidently illogical and twisted. He just says simply, their condemnation is deserved. So, there we are. Merry Christmas. <laughs> As we sit back and reflect on Paul's, at least what I think is some pretty passionate and expansive and rapid fire teaching, which is merely a beginning for what he's going to do later, this is going to get so good, you guys, <laughs> when things start coming together. But what are we to make of such things? as we've seen here in these eight verses. I can't really fully answer that for you. What I've been trying to do the last couple days and this morning in particular is really trust the Holy Spirit that he's going to answer that for you, that as you continue to study this text, he'll show. All I can do is share for my part where it's left me. And it's left me in just about the same place I felt last week. Namely, I feel at the end of myself. Because here's the thing. It is true, it is true that Paul forcefully declares that there is still an advantage to being Jewish. And this advantage does not provide security against potential judgment. Rather, it brings with it great responsibility. You see, to grow up in the environment of the law and the promises as a Jew in the Old Covenant is a benefit just as growing up in a Christian home under Christian parents who brought you to church and taught you the scriptures and the promises of God. If you're sitting here this morning, wouldn't you say that was a benefit to you? And even as Paul brings up this advantage, what it revealed was Israel's collective failure in keeping Torah as they should and sharing the promises as they should. They could never hold up their end of the covenant. They always failed in their covenant obligations, always, over and over again. Isn't that what we see when we read the story? And what that raises for us, well, at least what it raised for me, was the specter of my failure. My failure in keeping the covenant. My failure in sharing. Because I've been entrusted with the very words of God. What a sacred thing. What a sacred thing. And it would be sheer folly in the height of hubris to think that we are somehow better or stronger than all of humanity, Jewish or not, that has gone before us. But the glory here, the glory and the joy and the confidence that Paul's passionate proclamation has also revealed alongside of the reality of the ultimate failure of every human being is that my unfaithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Hallelujah. Because if you keep reading in Romans, 
Oh, please, you guys, please read forward. You're going to get to chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, which is all about Jesus. God knew that we would always fail and God will remain faithful to his original intention. Not only is his faithfulness not abolished by Israel's faithlessness, he will continue with his original plan. What he needs and what he will himself provide is a faithful Israelite who will at last carry out the commission. What he himself provides is the security we need. Is this not what we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate that God, in the sending of his son to be born of a virgin, what does Paul tell us elsewhere? Born under the law, circumcised on the eighth day. Worship team, would you come up? This one who never, ever, ever broke the law, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. At Christmas, we celebrate the reality that we, we could not hold up our end of the covenant and we can't ever. And so do you know what God did? Oh, this is so good. He kept it himself. He keeps both sides. He keeps both sides of the covenant for us in the sending of his Son, so that all the promises could be yes and amen for us in Jesus. So that if we would submit to his son Jesus as our king, if we would accept rescue at his hands, then in Jesus, in Jesus, in Jesus, wrapped up in Jesus, I can look up to God. And he looks down and he says, I find you faithful. It's the only way that it can happen. I think it's somewhat ironic that in this season we sing, O come all ye faithful, <laughs> when we know we have not been. I think that we should have a song that says, O come all ye unfaithful. And we do. And I'm really glad that a few years ago someone wrote it. I want to sing it for you now. Maybe you know it. The words will be on the screen. You don't have to sing along. I want you to really listen and look at the words, but if you decide that you want to, a third of the way through, half of the way through, you can join in, all right? Oh, come, all you unfaithful, come, weak and unstable, come, no, you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born, Christ is born for you. Oh, 
come, bitter and broken, come, with fears unspoken, come, taste of his perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. He's the Lamb who was given slain for our pardon his promise is peace for those who believe he's the lamb that was given slain for our pardon his promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come, he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. Family, is it any wonder that in response to such a display of the faithfulness of God for faithless people like us that a choir of millions upon millions of angels would sing in praise? <laughs> is it any wonder that they would recognize and see the glories of the Son of Righteousness, that they would understand the light and life he brings with healing in his wings, that they would discern in his birth the new birth of men, that Jesus was born so that men would no more die in their sin, that his living would bring the reconciliation of God with sinners, and that because angels would look into such realities and understand that they would call us to join with them in angelic praise? Is it any wonder that they would do that? That they would call not only us, but all the nations of the earth to glory with great joy that nothing will nullify the faithfulness of God to rescue a fallen and faithless humanity? So hark, grace, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Stand Right now and sing with them. <laughs> <laughs>